Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. This will be the last sermon in our series on the local church. Next week, we'll be starting a new series going through the book of 1 Peter. Um, but this morning, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to be looking at the first six verses. So over the last couple years, there's been a great divide within our country. Differences in opinion on who to vote for and how to live and function as a society in the midst of a pandemic has divided us. Debates on the efficiency of masks, racial tension, our children having to adapt to a different method and different school experience. And then we have tribes that are formed, people who are pro-vaccine and people who are anti-vaccine. And all of us have experienced loss during this season. Whether that be a loved one, a job, an opportunity, or even time with extended family, these things have fractured our relationships and caused division. And it's interesting how our society prides itself on tolerance and being inclusive, and yet within that same system, there is much exclusion. And unfortunately, this has bled into the church. Sadly, there are many churches that are not unified. We have brought these points of difference into the local church and have allowed them to separate us and cause division. And don't get me wrong, it's perfectly fine to have an opinion, to think differently than others. That's perfectly fine. We all come from different backgrounds. We're all in different stages of life. And this is part of the beauty of the church, the diversity of the church. The fact that God can take completely different people and unite them in Christ. But we too often let pride and bitterness and idolatry and envy and gossip and judgmentalism divide us. This is true of us, and this was true of the Ephesian church to which Paul was writing this letter. Unity is not an option. It's not an option. There needs to be unity in the church. And so if we've been reconciled and united to God and to each other through Jesus, then shouldn't our lives reflect that unity? Since we are the body of Christ, we should be united, not divided. And in our passage this morning, we will see that our unity in Christ demands a unity in the church. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, you are the God who has brought about reconciliation between us and yourself and with each other. We pray that you would show us areas in which we need to grow, areas in which we need to seek to walk in unity with one another. We pray that you would encourage, that you would convict and change us by your word this morning through your spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so the main point of my sermon this morning is this. Our unity in Christ demands a unity in the church. Our unity in Christ demands a unity in the church. And this is important because we often forget the unity that we have with one another in Christ. And we often fail at living that out. Our unity in Christ demands a unity in the church. And so in these verses, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the need for unity. We're going to see the walk of unity. And then the foundation of unity. First, we see the need for unity. Take a look at verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Chapter 4 is, a, is significant in the letter to the Ephesians because it marks a moment of transition. You see that transition word, therefore, I therefore. Paul has spent the first three chapters explaining what God has done. He talks about the spiritual blessings that believers have received in Christ, such as our election, our adoption, our redemption. And Paul goes on and on about God's grace towards those who are in Christ. And then Paul ends up praying for them in the midst of his letter. And then in chapter 2, he addresses the Gentiles, those who were not Jews. The Ephesian church was a diverse church made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And Paul reminds these Gentiles that at one time, they were separated from God and separated from his people. But now they can be united to Christ through faith and be united to each other. Gentiles are fellow heirs and share in the promises of the gospel. They are members of the same body. They are one in Christ. Jews and Gentiles had completely different customs, different values. Their opinions were different. Their preferences were different. And they struggled with disunity like we do because of their differences. And so when Paul writes, I therefore, in verse 1, 
He is referring to all of that. Everything he has written so far in his letter. He's laid out the groundwork of theology and he's explained what God has done in Christ, but now we'll begin to explain how a believer should respond to the grace that God has given. How should we respond to the grace that God has given? Paul describes himself as a prisoner for the Lord. So he's writing this letter while imprisoned in Rome, suffering for the gospel. And he's not writing this because he wants the Ephesians to be sympathetic towards him. He's not writing this because he desires rescue from his circumstance. He's saying there is a cost to living a faithful Christian life. He's a prisoner, but he's a prisoner for the Lord. He's not a prisoner of Rome. He's a prisoner for the Lord. He submitted himself to the will of God. And then he urges them, he begs them to walk, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. This theme of walking is seen all throughout the letter to the Ephesians. And the word walk is a metaphor for how we should behave, how we should live. The word used for walk here is a command, and it's referring to something that we do continually, daily. It's an every moment type of living. And so he's urging the Ephesians to live out the Christian life, a life submitted to God that's reflective of his grace. So he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Unfortunately, this phrase is often misunderstood. Paul isn't saying that we are called because we are worthy. No, it's just the opposite. The calling to which we are called is all of grace. And the word worthy means fitting or appropriate. And so we must walk in a way that shows the grace that we have received. It shows who we are in Jesus. And so the argument would be that since he has chosen you, since he has redeemed you, he's adopted you into his family, united you to him and to each other, you've been called out of the world and into the body of Christ, the church. You have a new family. So you should live in a manner that reflects the grace you've received. Paul is encouraging the Ephesians to live worthy, to walk worthy. And then verse 3 in this passage is where we get the major emphasis for the need of unity. Look at verse 3. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of of peace. Notice that this verse gives us the assumption that unity isn't always seen in the church. We know this to be the reality because we know who we are. But Paul is urging the Ephesians to maintain the unity. To maintain the unity, it means that there was issues. There was Episodes of disunity with, with the Ephesian believers, most likely between 
the Jews and the Gentiles. And this isn't unique to the Ephesian church. The Corinthian church was also a mess. We know that. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul is urging them to get rid of the divisions and be unified in the things that are important. There were issues with disunity in the Ephesian church and in the Corinthian church. And most likely there's issues in every church. They may not be on the surface, but they could be underlying that. And so consider how our world views the church. How do unbelievers view the church and how we interact in society? I just looked online, found a couple of things that the world is saying about the church. It's a place of conflict. It's a place of scandal. It's a place of in, infighting. And then think of how some of us speak of the church or treat other members in our congregation one glance at Christians on social media, and you would think that we hate each other. Paul reminds us to be eager to maintain unity. And so if maintenance is needed, then that means sometimes it breaks down. It needs repair. But we must be clear on what breaks down. Because the unity that we have in Christ is indestructible. That doesn't break down. Paul doesn't say be eager to create unity, but to maintain the unity that already exists because of the finished work of Christ. And so as we maintain this unity, we maintain it through the bond of peace. And notice that Paul calls this unity the unity of the Spirit. It's a unity secured by Christ and given by the Holy Spirit. We already have unity between one another. There's this spiritual unity that we have, but Paul is urging us to maintain it by making it visible to others. Um, Pastor John Sott says, we should be demonstrating to the world that the unity we say exists is not a sick joke, but a true and glorious reality. Here's an analogy, all right? So let's say there's a married couple, and they're fighting with one another, right? So outside perspective, looking at them fighting with one another, it looks like there's disunity, right? That's what we would say. It would look like there's disunity in the marriage, but in reality, because of the union that they have in marriage, only the visible unity is fractured. The union as a married couple is still intact. And so if you and I were involved in their lives, what would we do? We would remind them to maintain the unity that they already have in marriage. That's what Paul is doing here with the Ephesians. He's reminding them to maintain the unity that they have, to make it visible. This unity already exists by what the Spirit has done, but we must be committed to preserving it 
Do you see the need for the unity in the local church? And in verses 1 and 3, we've seen the need for unity. And now in verse 2, we will see the walk of unity. What does it look like to walk in a manner worthy? What characteristics does God emphasize for those who are to be unified? Take a look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. These traits are very similar to the one that Paul gives to the, the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. And if you look at this list, you can't help but notice that all of these things have to do with our relationships. He begins with humility. There's probably a reason for that first. This is a hard one. Humility is the opposite of pride. And pride is something that our culture values. And it's a sin that we all are guilty of committing on a daily basis. We think of ourselves first and others second. And this isn't something specific to our culture and time. Paul was encouraging unity during the time in which this letter was written. And in the time of, of the Ephesian church, humility was actually despised in the culture around them. We are a self-centered people, and we always have been. We seek respect and recognition and authority, and we'll do whatever it takes to get those things. And so Paul confronted the Philippians about this issue as well in Philippians Chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. When we consider others over ourselves, we set our agendas aside and we serve. Pride creates disunity. Humility promotes unity. Believers should be humble people because our inclusion into the church, our calling has nothing to do with what we have done. It has nothing to do with what we have done. It's all of God's grace. And the next characteristic that Paul lists here is gentleness. Think about the opposite of gentleness. Someone who is harsh and violent. We could see why Paul, Paul lists this trait. But gentleness can be misunderstood. A gentle person is not someone who is weak or someone who evades conflict. The word gentleness, or also meekness, literally means power under control. Power under control. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, described gentleness as being in between excessive anger about everything all the time and then never being angry. So in between that, someone who is gentle has a massive amount 
of self-control. They have the, the ability to be angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. And with that definition, we have to conclude that we cannot be gentle on our own. We need God's help through the Holy Spirit to truly be gentle. But think about how helpful this, qual this quality could be for unity. To be someone who has both the ability to care for people, but then also be protective of them when they need it. Are you harsh with people? Is your anger under control? These two qualities, humility and gentleness, are how Jesus describes himself in Matthew 11. He says that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus is both gentle and humble. Think of Jesus' power that was under control as he lived amongst sinners like you and me. He cared for the weak and the powerless, those who recognized that they were sinners in need of God's grace. But he also had anger under control when faced with the proud religious leaders. Jesus was gentle. Look to him as your example of gentleness. He is gentle and humble. And then consider Philippians 2 again. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the ultimate example of humility. Instead of counting equality with God, he became a servant. The one who is worthy of being served served others. He humbled himself to die in the place of those who were guilty. He died in the place of those who were prideful and harsh in order to reconcile us back to God, to also transform us and to bring about unity. Walking in unity requires humility and gentleness. And the next characteristic that Paul mentions is patience. In our day of Amazon Prime same-day delivery, we have lost the ability to wait. I'm still waiting on the bag of coffee that I ordered a couple days ago. I'm a little frustrated that it's not here yet. We've lost the ability to wait, to be patient. And our relationships, are we patient with others? Giving them time to fail, to learn, to develop. The word patience is oftentimes translated as long suffering. It's the ability to tolerate the shortcomings of others 
who are in the process of being sanctified by God. Long-suffering. Think about those who have been patient with you. Think about those who are continually being patient with you. And God is the greatest example of patience. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul writes, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God has held back his wrath towards those who sin against him in his kindness and in the riches of his patience in order that people would repent. God is patient. He's patient with us. And so we must work on being patient towards others as God is working on them and us. How are you doing with being patient towards others, especially those who are difficult? And going along the same lines of being patient, Paul says walking in unity involves bearing with one another in love. There's a willingness to put up with someone even if they offend us, even if they sin against us. Bearing with one another in love. There should be a willingness to not give up on them. And we do it in love. It's pretty easy to just tolerate people, but it's another thing to live in the mess with them, to walk with them in their weakness, to walk with them in their immaturity, and do so in a way in which they feel valued and loved. We do have to admit that this is hard, and we often fail at it. I fail at it. But we must pursue growth in it. And with the Spirit's help, we will. And as we think about all these characteristics, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, some may think, isn't this a little extreme? Or maybe the other side of it, they all just sound like passive attributes. They sound like weakness. But that's because we don't think deep about these things. All of these qualities require strength. To refuse to exalt yourself isn't to be passive, but to be strong enough to not require attention and pampering. It means you have the maturity and ability to care. And living out these characteristics shouldn't allow for others to be selfish or irresponsible or take advantage of us. Later on, Paul addresses that speaking the truth in love and confronting people who are sinning is just as appropriate in some instances. But here we see qualities that help us to walk in unity with others. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. This is how we walk in unity. Our main callings as Christians include loving one another, considering others more significant than ourselves, and working hard to preserve the unity of the church. 
We can grow in these things as we consider what Jesus has done for us and how he now calls us to follow him. Because Jesus served not himself, but us, we are called to serve others. So we've seen the need for unity, how to practically walk in unity, and now let's look at the foundation of unity. We see that in verses four through six. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Our unity in Christ demands a unity in the church. These verses almost read like a creed or confession. We have these seven points of belief that form the foundation of our unity. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. Paul says that there is one body. He's speaking of the church. The second we become believers, we enter this one family, no matter what skin color, language we speak, social class that we come from, we become part of this one body. And there, be, there may be many denominations and different types of churches, but Paul is referring to the universal church. Everyone who is in Christ is a member of this one body. Last month, we recited the Apostles' Creed in our worship service. And I had some people ask me, why the line, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church? It's a good question. But it's in that creed, and it's in a lot of other creeds that all Christians should confess. But the word Catholic in this instance means universal, concerning the whole. It does not refer exclusively to the Roman Catholic Church. And the doctrines that the Roman Catholic Church would actually not include them in the Holy Catholic Church. So when we say that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we're confessing that there is one body, one universal church. All who believe in Jesus Christ belong to the Holy Catholic Church, this one body. We are part of the same body with one head, Jesus Christ. So there's one body and then there's one spirit this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit seals us. He gives us new life. We have access to the Father through the Spirit. The Spirit brings unity. There are not many spirits. There is one Spirit. And there is also one hope. We've been saved, adopted, and by God's grace we are being transformed and we await the return of Jesus in glory and in sharing that glory with him. There is only one eternal destiny, and the Spirit is the one who seals us in this hope. We have one hope, and there is one Lord. We all have the same Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. 
Jesus Christ and him crucified is the central message of the church. We have one Lord. And we have one faith. We have the same way of salvation. There's not multiple ways to God. There's not multiple ways to eternal life. The only way to be saved is through believing in Jesus Christ alone. There's one faith. There's one baptism. While many churches differ on how and when baptisms are administered, we all agree on the significance. There is only one baptism. And this baptism is not for the sake of obtaining salvation, but to testify of the salvation that has already taken place. There is one baptism. And lastly, Paul lists one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Paul is declaring God's supreme sovereignty, omnipotence, and presence in his creation. We should notice that the Trinity is central to Paul's discussion on unity. These should be things that unify us. These are the foundations. They help us see who we are united with and who we're not united with. These foundational truths show us that there's a wider scope of Christians in which we should be unified with. Calvary Baptist Church is a Baptist church. We have certain distinctives that make us different from let's say, a Presbyterian church. But in light of this creed that Paul references here, all churches and Christians that agree in these foundational truths are fellow brothers and sisters. But we should never unify our churches in anything other than the gospel and the doctrines that flow from it. And yet, we often find ourselves seeking a unity founded on our preferences, on our opinions, maybe musical styles or traditions or political views, you name it. Some of us seek out community within our churches with those we have much in common with and then neglect those who are different from us, even though we agree on the things that are most important and I'm preaching as much to myself as I am to you. I am guilty of that. The unity that we have in the gospel should push us to celebrate and learn from the diversity that we have in the body of Christ. Practically, this means that those encounters with the guy who goes on and on and on about his political hobby horse or that couple that aligns themselves differently than you. Those interactions are good. Those interactions are God intended. You don't have to abandon your own perspectives, but you are called to listen, to love, and to have unity. Here's a couple questions. Can you love fellow members who confess the same faith and yet differ over politics and vaccination status? 
Can you embrace brothers and sisters in Christ who may be at a different stage in life, a different stage in their sanctification? Can you find unity with people who have different philosophies on parenting, on musical preferences, on financial decisions? And if our answer is no, which it shouldn't be, but if it is no, then our unity isn't founded on the gospel. It's founded in our preferences and opinions. And we must repent of this. When unity is built on personal preference, that unity will crumble. But when we find unity in sound doctrine, it will hold together. It will produce this ability to see the need for unity. And then we will strive to walk worthy, to be humble, to be patient and loving. Jesus prays for this type of unity. And if you don't believe me, take a look at John 17. In verse 11, Jesus prays that his people would be one or unified, just as the Father and the Son are unified. The unity that exists between the Father and the Son is eternal, and it consists of a common purpose and mission. And in John 17, verses 20 through 21, Jesus prays this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our unity that we display as the church has an evangelistic purpose. Jesus prays that the watching world would believe as they see the church unified in a world full of darkness and disunity. Jesus prays for us to be unified. Our unity in Christ demands a unity in the church. In these verses, we have seen the need for unity. Unity is essential to the message we proclaim. There is a world that is watching us. We should be eager to maintain the unity we have in Christ. We've also seen the walk of unity. Humility is needed because pride insists on getting its own way. Gentleness is needed because anger offends and harms others. Patience is needed because we cannot control the actions of others and because everyone has weaknesses. And love is needed because it gives us the right motivation in doing all of these things. Think about this. Churches contain former enemies learning to love one another. We're natural-born enemies of God and each other. But God has torn down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles, which means he has brought unity into his church. 
We've seen the basis of unity. To be clear, the message isn't unity at all costs or at any cost. Unity for the sake of unity is not the goal. That's why I say that our unity in Christ demands a unity in the church. Unity does not mean sameness. In fact, it's achieved through diversity. It's a unity not based on personality and preferences, but based on a shared faith in one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ. We who were once far off have been reconciled to God, brought near by the blood of Jesus. He's made us one. We have unity with God and with other believers because of Jesus' death on the cross. Let us maintain the unity that we have by being humble, gentle, patient, and loving towards all who believe. Are you walking worthy of the calling to which you've been called to? Our unity in Christ demands a unity in the church. Let's pray.